Hi everyone and welcome. So this is our discussion on how engineering teams can solve the cloud engineering resource challenge. We're hosting these workshops to share how we've been solving these challenges for our clients. And with me today, I have Ashton Maloney, Director of Cloud Services and co-founder at Fernie. Hey all, nice to meet you. So to give a bit of background as to why we're here today, how would you say the demand for cloud engineering and DevOps roles has evolved over the past few years? Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of change and I think what is worth first calling out is the change of innovation and the pace of innovation. I think a lot of companies have been moving to the cloud for quite some time, but what we're seeing is more businesses are now willing to invest and to innovate. As a result, people are leveraging cloud technologies more. We're seeing more people leverage things like machine learning, and we're all seeing the, the huge increase in the race for generative AI right now. We're also seeing people leverage their data more, but also... On the engineering side, we're seeing a lot of evolution as well. We're seeing people evolve in all their continuous, de um, com continuous deployment technologies and the ecosystem around them. So I don't think it's so much that people are moving to cloud anymore. I think it's now that people, like I said, are innovating. Yeah. So we're seeing a huge increase in the specialist roles. We're seeing more demand for these um, technical individuals who understand these technologies. And as the how tall landscape is growing, so are the needs of these engineers, but also the diversification of these engineers. Mm -hmm. Definitely, you know, definitely seeing good growth in that area, um, but it's growing in different areas. And I think that's the change that we're starting to see. Yeah. Yeah. And the overall demand is growing, isn't it, for the cloud engineers? Mm. I think it's, it's like I said, the need to innovate is growing. It's not mm -hmm. just the cloud engineering is the need to try the new technologies, the need to, you know, technology is so fast paced that no one wants to be left behind. And we're seeing more people trying to ride the wave of innovation and ride the wave of progressiveness within technologies in the business. And that is just yeah. creating a high demand for cloud engineers. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of innovation in the realm of data and AI at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what, what would you say are the primary challenges that the agencies in particular face when it comes to resourcing cloud, DevOps, site reliability, engineering teams and such? Yeah, I think every business has different challenges, but what we've certainly seen in, in the agency and the consultative space is flexibility. Where the demand for these engineers has grown quite quickly over the past decade, even more so in the past few years, the cost of these engineers has grown as well as a result, you know, it's mm. typical supply and demand. So not having flexibility in, you know, the costs that come with that is a challenge for a lot of these agencies. As you can imagine, if you're, if you're hiring these expensive cloud engineers and you're, you have projects that you know, might be very full on for three months and then have a big gap or might only be a two month project, having the flexibility of being able to like, Use people when you need them, when you don't, so you're not paying these high salaries when they're underutilized, is a big challenge for agencies, and that's a challenge that you know we're here to talk about today and how we're trying to solve that. Um, but it is it is a problem, and it's becoming harder and harder right now. Mm -hmm. And also, what we see with a lot of cloud engineers is that people are needed more at different parts of the project lifecycle. Typically, cloud engineers are very heavily involved at the beginning of a project, very heavily involved at the end, but the piece in the middle where the engineers are heads down, they are involved from a support function, but they're not needed as much, and that's an expensive salary. Yeah, not actively in, in implementing, so what do you do with them at that time? Exactly. So you either have to try and load up different projects for them to work on, which obviously comes at, um, can have a cost of you know, the, the welfare of your individuals, or they're just underutilized and uh, you're paying a big high salary when you don't need them. Yeah, it's definitely the the cost of that resource is increasing due to that demand. So the, the revenue, only the businesses that can afford to pay that high revenue per head of 78K is only, only those are able to hire those cloud engineers. It's for the, for any businesses where they're billing for those staff members by the hour, they can only charge out so much for those those resources so they can only afford to pay so much for those resources yeah i mean it's getting harder and harder to make a profit from cloud engineering in the agency and consultative world when you're product based you know your your reflection of how good they are really or the revenue for them comes from the sales of your product so as long as you have a successful product you can cover the cost mm. 
them engineers. But in the consulting or agency world, that's a lot harder. A lot of revenue is driven, like you said, based on you know the the timeline or the time span that that employee would be working on a specific project, so that you can charge your customers as a result. Is getting harder and harder for businesses to um, to do that, and then especially as the business grows, uh, the employees get utilized in more areas that are not just delivering their work. So then mm-hmm. that cost per head uh, gap of revenue versus cost is even higher as a result yeah and in fact finding that skilled resources is a bit of a challenge isn't it finding the engineer yeah, yeah. the experience with the the different tech as, as that whole world is expanding right now yeah and you know it's like we just covered is that the diversification of the technologies that people specializing is growing larger and larger there's so many different areas now specialism from you know data engineering to data science to cloud engineering to security to networking to you know some of the more um, general support maintenance these are like skill sets that are growing individually as the, the cloud landscape is growing and becoming more varied in terms of technologies and requirements yeah yeah and that that that's creating a, a skills gap isn't it because when, when we started it was very it was very simple simple it was you had HTML, CSS, and a web server. That was kind of it. Now that whole world is is a lot more complex and uh, with the differences. See, we have the engineers focusing on their their languages, their Python's, PHP, .NET, Java, th- those tools that they're familiar with and pumping out features and logic and the things that they can contribute from that area. But their actual understanding of the wider realm now with DevOps and site reliability engineering and auto-scaling services is it's quite... Gap in that knowledge, isn't it? Yeah, and that gap is growing as people follow different career paths into cloud. And uh, a conversation we had the other day is about you know what we typically see in cloud engineering is people either come from maybe an IT background that have progressed in you know, the infrastructure management and the cloud platform management, or they come from a software background, and then mm-hmm. they transfer more into the management of these cloud services. Uh, but there is, depending on your need, a con- entirely different thought process and skills that come with the different types of people. What we tend to find is people that come from software engineering understands, you know, the more lower level operating of like memory utilization, CPU utilization, how to design stateless applications. Whereas people that come from more of an IT background understand the ecosystem around it a little bit better. They understand compliance, they understand governments, they understand security. And so they each play to their strengths. Um, but the different career paths create different gaps in expertise in the cloud engineering. And we're now actually seeing more and more people coming straight into cloud who then don't have either of them skill sets. They're kind of learning in the environment that they're in, which is absolutely fine. But depending on the size of your team and, you know, these people are hard to find, so they're not usually in huge teams that the support network that they have is, is less. So Hmm. not having that you know, experience of previous mistakes and gotchas uh, is becoming more and more prevalent in this industry. Hmm. So thinking about how the agencies can kind of circumvent that challenge, I think one of the things that really helped us was around automation and standardization. So um, getting getting projects into a, a routine of how they can be deployed very efficiently and, and how when we're doing multiple projects, because in the agency world, you're, you're consistently launching new projects how you can do that in a very standardized way yeah so if we were to compare this to the software development life cycle this is a concept that's been around for many years and has been deeply refined from your source code management to your build processes to your testing strategy your unit testing and end-to-end testing people have been investing in these areas significantly whereas in cloud as it's you know a lot less mature, although it is getting to quite a mature state right now, it's still not as well refined in that area. So something that we have been doing for quite some time now is using a continuous deployment system or but for your infrastructure. And by doing so, introducing change control and approval process within the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So if we use a scenario such as all cloud platform changes must be committed to some sort of source repository 
And then that can only be applied to the cloud environment using the technologies rather than individuals. You can have an approval process that can catch things when they're going wrong. Uh, but you also can have automated testing as, as a part of that. So if you had Terraform unit tests or, or you know, whatever tests you decide to go ahead with. And then also having an approval process behind that. And I think it's that approval process around testing Terraform code in one environment before it goes to the next, before it goes to the next, not allowing the ability to make a mistake of, you know, skipping that process, which we've seen people do on, on many occasions for a variety of reasons. But by governing that process using technologies, you bake your best practices and lessons learned into your Terraform so you prevent the same mistakes from being made again. You have that change control so that if you had a more junior team member or less experienced team member working on infrastructure as code, a more senior person can can approve it. And yeah, you just have a more governed process. You can implement security testing, you can implement cost analysis that will kind of happen before changes are made. And you start to get the benefits of more well-defined and matured way of working. Like we've you know evolved over the years in software engineering. We're now starting to get that in cloud engineering. And I think it's underrated on how important it is to have these pipelines as a part yeah. of the way that you work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, from a software engineering perspective, one of the first things we learn is don't edit on prod. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, mistakes do happen. I've seen people apply Terraform to the wrong you know, cloud platforms or to the wrong mm -hmm. environment. We've seen people apply Helm to the wrong environments, which is, you know, taking things offline. But it, it is easy to make a, make a mistake in these scenarios, especially if you can imagine you've got two environments that are like for like, that are using the same Terraform scripts. It's so easy to just apply that to the wrong environment just in a split second of making a mistake of not having your machine connected to the right environment. So having these tools to apply these changes, prevent these from happening and also let you catch things before they go wrong. Like something that we implemented some time ago as well is having the, the diffs. So like if you're using Terraform, you have your Terraform plan. Your Terraform plan is a part of the approval process before it is promoted to the next environment. And we managed to achieve the same with Helm by using Helm diff, where mm -hmm. before you actually apply an application or an infrastructure change to an environment, we'll actually pop up and say, hey, these are the changes that are being made. Do you approve them? And just yeah. having that approval process has prevented us from having quite a lot of mistakes where we've caught, oh, hold on, it's going to apply the wrong secret or just some, some things that, you know, they just happen. These things happen. And, um, yeah, having that refined process in place has made such a difference that yeah, we do recommend it quite quite significantly to to our customers or anyone in general. Mm. So I know that one of the the questions when it comes to hiring these cloud engineers is what salary what role does salary play in attracting and retaining those cloud individuals? And I know that it from our perspective, it's not normally the top priority. Like we obviously cloud engineers want to be paid fairly, but the the price of a fair salary is now sort of seventy, eighty thousand for a, for a midweight. It's it's just not feasible for agencies to to compete in that arena now when they're billing by the hour. It's it makes it very difficult. Yeah, and you know I, I quite like to compare it to like a dating profile right on one of these apps. Now the salary is 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 the the initial attraction, but it's not what builds up the relationship. People will only swipe or you know connect with people on a dating app if they you know like the look of their pictures unfortunately that's just the way it is um same way that people won't even look at your job description if they don't think the salary meets what they're expecting but that is just a door opener salary is just a conversation starter mm -hmm. what really attracts a lot of these engineers is opportunity opportunity to have a culture where they're going to play with modern technologies they're going to get to try and do new innovative things you know, you've got to think about the mindset of these engineers and how they got into these careers. A lot of them like to be challenged. We're puzzle solvers. If we're just doing managing maintenance on the same cloud platform week on week on week, you're not going to retain these staff. There has to be some sort of willingness to try and improve what you're doing, to try and allow the trial of new technologies, to try and always be bettering yourself. Now, there's a wider business benefit to doing that, and we do understand Commercially, that's not always simple to achieve, but there are smaller ways of doing this, smaller ways of playing with proof of concept, smaller ways of 
investing in some of these technologies rather than having to go for a huge technology reshift. So yeah. it's just always thinking about that. Like what, what do these engineers want? And they like technology. That's why they're there. So you have to feed that, that knowledge and feed that hunger to learn as a part of that. Yeah. I know one of the things for me in particular was always around kind of the, the culture and environment and training that was available. So being in a, being in a team where that advancement of your skills and, and, and making sure that we're, we're working towards those common goals was very much, uh, the salary mattered less. It it was, it was about kind of the, the, the experience with the team and, and like avoiding blame culture and having a nice environment where you can continue to learn and, and learn from your, your peers, get mentors and, and understand a bit more and grow. Yeah, exactly. And I've interviewed hundreds of cloud engineers over my career and hired, you know, dozens of them. Mm-hmm. But one thing that came up quite a lot was people wanting to know, am I going to be working on my own or am I going to be working as a part of a team? Mm-hmm. And quite often people were coming to us and we were interviewing them and we're screening them because they weren't learning as a part of being on their own. They didn't have that support, that camaraderie of trying to solve a problem together. And I think it's important to to always try and enforce that. Even if it's just, what's my failure of the week? It shouldn't be a bad thing to talk about your failures. We should all be learning from each other's failures so we don't make the same mistakes. Um, It's just building up the camaraderie, building up that team mentality is so important in engineers because that's what a lot of a lot of engineers like they like to share knowledge they like to share learnings share problems you know the amount of times i've been on a screen share and solving a challenge with an individual and it's been helpful not just for me but for other people as a learning exercise let alone as solving a problem together it's just feeding that again that knowledge and and that hunger to learn and to grow and it's solving problems and it's inco- always being able to encourage that yeah, and I think in addition to that, like also not just solving the problems, but avoiding the problems. Like yeah. having a culture where where it's natural to put processes in place where those things that are going to become problems don't, because you put the right processes in place, and that's the focus. I think it's definitely yeah. It. It's not being resistant to change. We can only prevent mistakes from happening you know, over and over again by implementing change. Mm. And if we get too complacent in the way that we're working. We, we become resistant to change. So it's always being open to change, always being open to trying new processes, never enforcing that on people. You always want to try and have people contribute towards that process so they understand why you're trying to do it rather than just saying, hey, this is the new process. You must not do this. The, you know, People don't like that. You have to try and encourage them. This is the business challenge we're trying to solve. Can you tell us how, you, you know, if you was to try and approach this, how would you do it? And having them be a part of that decision is really key to having these processes and and um, methodologies followed. Yeah, yeah, and, and creating a nice environment is definitely a a good part of that. Like b- being empathetic to employee employee needs, so working from home, that sort of thing, um, becoming all the more common right now, and, and having the ability to have those quiet areas. And you often see engineers with headphones on because getting in the zone is is a challenge. Yeah. You know, as from, you know, the movie, the social network, right. When they talk about, you know, he, he's, he's tuned in, he's in the zone. Yeah. And it is a real thing. It takes it time to <laughs> get your head around a problem. And the last thing you want as an engineer is when you're finally getting your head into a problem, finally understanding where to start, where to start looking is to have lots of disruptions, really yeah. hard to dip in and out of projects in engineering. Yeah, there's a whole lot of statistics around this. Like it takes 15 minutes to get into the zone. And then um, yeah. if you have, have a distraction, it's another 15 minutes to get back into it. So, And, and it's so yeah. true. So there's a time and a place for, for each. And this is where we talked about, you know, there are definitely benefits from working from home. We, you know, I am a fan of being in person when you're at like the ideation stage, you're at the creativity yeah, stage, you're at the architecting stage. There's nothing better than having the people in the room when you're at the delivery phase going away sometimes and just being able to just you know sit in in your own zone tune in and just get on with it there's so much to be said for that and sometimes that's really hard to do in certain office environments yeah um yeah so there, there's a 
you need that even mix. There's a time and a place for each. Yeah, yeah. It's, and even if you can't offer that work from home, which I hope most businesses can these days, but uh, even if you can't, then it's it's a case of well, can can you give them some time where they can focus on those activities? Like, can we block out some time for the engineers to focus so they can really get through as much as possible in the time they have? Yeah, something uh, you know I've been guilty of in my own career is not having focus time blocked out in my calendar, and it's so important. It's so easy to keep being disrupted when you're in the zone by having to jump on a stand-up, by having to jump on a meeting, by having to jump on you know, all of these lots of calls that we typically have in any kind of agency or consulting environment and in a product-based environment as well. Uh, but ensuring that you have that focus time and you're, you're allowed that focus time where you, know, you can safely block out your calendar and not have people booking over it is absolutely crucial to, to delivering quality work and I think that's something that more companies need to start adopting. I've seen quite a lot like meeting free Fridays, like that's becoming yeah. quite a, a popular thing. And then I'm all for it in some cases, uh, or at least being able to have certain blocks where it could be meeting free. And, you know, you have that mindset where, right, I can sit down in that time and I can really focus on, on the core challenge that's in front of me, whether it's like designing something or building something or fixing a bug, or even just having time to go and help someone else. But having that blocked out is absolutely crucial to to having that healthy way of working. Yeah, I've worked in a couple of environments where it was um, like meetings were just in the morning and uh, the afternoons were like focus time. So Yeah, love that. Yeah. yeah. I think of all of those, it does, the one that always comes back to is the, the working with the right tech, the new tech and progressive tech is is definitely the one that I think, at least for me, is yeah for sure yeah it's a challenge but also uh, you know a bonus as well mm. being able to enable that within an environment is isn't always easy you know everyone has budgets everyone has time constraints everyone's busy um but it is also important and mm. long term a lot of these the evolution of these technologies are actually making your your lives easier actually solving challenges for you so you don't have to do it so yeah, it is, it's really hard to do in some scenarios, but it is vital to make sure that you are always innovating in the technologies that you're using, not just from a retention perspective, but also from ensuring that you, you, you're not falling behind in the way that you're working and, you know, going to make it harder to attract the right talent later on. Yeah. So when it comes to, um, site reliability engineering, it's a bit of a different challenge, isn't it? Because it's, uh, things like out of hours support and such. So what? What can agencies employ to attract those calendar those candidates in those roles? Yeah, I think the concept of site reliability engineering is taking engineers and asking them to solve an infrastructure problem. These typically come and become more involved when there are some issues. There are some issues with performance, with stability, with the applications themselves, and having the individuals that understand the code and the infrastructure are the best people to solve that. But these are also people get to these roles as SREs because they are, and they love to be progressive in their learning, you know, to learn software engineering, to learn cloud engineering, to learn lots of the other technologies, to understand everything at a low enough level, that you could troubleshoot it from, oh, we see that these DNS queries are running slow or this, we're using too much, you know, allocated memory here, or we're reading, writing from the disk too much here. Understand it at that low level. Um, requires a lot of learning and, and a, a genuine curiosity of how things work and how they tick. So you have to understand that when you hire these individuals, that you are feeding that, that you're not just hiring an SRE engineer just to be on you know 24-hour support or just to provide incident support. You're not going to retain them individuals. When you hire an SRE engineer, they do need to be involved in the more complex tasks. You do need to be feeding that uh, hunger for knowledge in order to to keep them effective and to you know have them perform in the optimal way hmm. yeah i know that give, giving them yeah. that ownership over their domain is definitely a, a a point like letting them be in control of their own destiny to a certain extent with kind of ownership of the tech and implementation of the processes and actually being able to contribute to to better ways of working yeah, you, last thing you want is an expensive SRE engineer just fixing small bugs and fighting small fires. It's not a good use of time. 
we want these people to be used for the more complex tasks for the the stuff that's going to make a difference and have a you know a good return on that investment mm. so yeah feeding them having them involved in any kind of conversations around innovation allowing them to make proposals for innovation it's not just sre engineers this is engineers in general mm. um being open to introducing more automation yes there is always an upfront cost for introducing more automation but there's a long-term benefit for doing so, which ultimately should result in more efficiencies and, and you know, less time spent fighting fires. Yeah. Yeah. And having, I think when it comes to that and getting, getting the benefit of a site reliability engineer, having the buy-in from the top of the organization as to why that role and what they do is so important to the overall success of the organization is, is very important. Like that, the site reliability engineering is very tied to the customer experience, the user experience. Like if the, if the solution goes down, then obviously that that's going to be affected. So yeah, unfortunately you don't need these people until you need them. Uh, and you know, that's when you really, you know, realize the value of an individual, but unfortunately you don't want to come to the point where you're not recognizing the value until something goes wrong. It's, mm. The problem is it's hard to quantify the value of people when nothing goes wrong. But if nothing is going wrong, then they're actually doing a good job. Yeah. And I think there's definitely a big gap in understanding that from you know the top and from a more C-level approach on the value of these people. You do see that understanding when companies are more digital natives or cloud native companies, because naturally mm. that's how they built up the business. But in a lot of uh, other, other industries and things like agencies and consulting where that's not their, then usually their main line of, of business. I think the understanding of the value that these people bring is, is definitely still, we've got a way to go. Um, yeah, but, it's not, you know, yeah. it's not immediately obvious, is it? Cause you, you spend less time firefighting and more time avoiding those fires. So the overall success of the campaign or site or whatever it is they're building is, is better. And you meet your SLAs and your, your goals for that particular customer, but it's, there's, there's no like champion that, that saved the day because actually if you have one of those, then it shows that you're failing because you had a period of downtime, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, the only time you actually visibly see their value is when something goes wrong, but actually <laughs> the true value comes when nothing goes wrong. And yeah, it's that, it's that hidden, hidden benefit, isn't it? Yeah. It's that investment in, in more more stability so that you can have more innovation at a faster pace and you invest more in automation so you can get more efficient in what you do um in your operations yeah absolutely yeah so um can you provide some insights into the benefits and drawbacks of outsourcing cloud services yeah we're definitely seeing more and more companies consider outsourcing cloud services the reason why is because these people are expensive and that's the truth, right? So when you are someone like us who can provide you know, a fully managed service or we can provide flexible services, we're able to do that because we have a breadth of customers that we're able to use as a pool over our resource. So therefore our revenue per employee is higher than just hiring them yourself. Um, so the benefits there are is actually can be more cost effective to outsource than it can be to hire them yourselves, like I said, because we get a better utilization out of these individuals. Mm. Um, the drawbacks are uh, there is quite often a level, if you want flexible support, there is a level of investment of time up front. If we have engineers that are dipping in and out of your projects, we need to make sure that our onboarding process is watertight. We need to make sure that we are able to give the engineers the right information so they can provide you know a good quality service in this scenario. That is something that we we help with and we provide guidance on, but at the same time does require an investment of time from uh, the customer. Um, also, it, it's you know it, another drawback is it's becoming difficult to find highly skilled resource when hiring them yourself. Mm. Like we said, that there's lots of different technologies from. You know, now it's not just about understanding machine learning. You need to understand machine learning pipelines. You need to understand data engineering. You need to understand the security around the data that's being used. Or if you're in 
application, you need to understand how to do sufficient scaling, how to do multi-region deployments, which includes the latency. Like these are such varied skill sets that are required to deliver a successful project that it's becoming harder and harder for people to find them. And it's hard for you to train and upskill them internally in some scenarios. Again, if you don't have that continuous uh, introduction of new technologies, otherwise people just become theory experienced rather than practically experienced, which is mm. great. You know, it's good that people are progressing, but you don't get the experience of the gotchas and um, the little intricacies that come with setting up some of these more complex platforms. Yeah. So I suppose if uh, these agencies did want to kind of take it in-house, one of the things they could do as an alternative to outsourcing is actually offshoring. So they could get the benefits of onboarding the teams with their ways of working um, and potentially have part of their resource locally and part of it uh, further afield. But there is also yeah. that, um, th there's that benefit, isn't there, to, to saying th this cloud, cloud partner is going to manage our cloud maintenance and our, our infrastructure, our DevOps pipeline. It's, you're filling gaps in your internal resource, aren't you? Yeah, there's, there's tons of strategies. You know, offshoring is one strategy to bring in more cost-effective resource. Um, but what we're finding is that in that scenario, quite often people still don't have the background and the expertise. They are, they have the certifications, they have you know, the, the, the paperwork that makes them qualify for what you're doing, but they haven't done these jobs over and over. And that's quite a common practice with a lot of offshoring. That's not to say that's all scenarios. It's just what we're seeing is where these offshoring companies are growing so quickly and so big, the experience that comes with the individuals that they're using is, you know, is getting less and less quality ultimately. Um, but it is still a strategy. It really depends on your internal mechanisms to, to manage them, to train them, to guide them, to have that quality control. If you do have a buttoned up pipeline or deploying infrastructure as code and application changes, then you know you you can have that quality control and that governance baked into your process. Um, but also we're seeing people come and more and more transitioning over to managed services. The reason why we're seeing that is because it comes with things like SLAs. You can you can have an SLA internally, but it's not really an SLA, it's an SLO. An SLA has to have some kind of backing or repercussions for not meeting it, whether it's credit-based, time-based, or, or whatever it may be there is still some level of accountability for not meeting um, your, you know, your required agreements. Whereas internally, you don't have that. You can have an artificial SLA, which is more of an SLO, it's an objective, isn't it? If there's no actual repercussions for not meeting it, it's not an agreement, it's an objective. And yeah. So people that really require that guaranteed level of service, and we're seeing them move more and more to, ma uh, to a managed platform. Yeah. So, so what factors do you think these agencies should consider when evaluating cloud partners such as ourselves with these kind of flexible outsource support options? Yeah. If, if you're looking at the offshoring method where you just want to have some staff that can kind of be planted within your team and take stuff on, then your internal ability to manage that and, and govern that there is, you, know, you do introduce more, um, more, overheads for your existing teams to kind of manage them um, and to make sure that they are understanding the requirements to make sure that you, that, you know there is a higher level of management required um, onboarding onboarding is key in all areas I think if you're looking at bringing in any kind of uh, party whether it's you know, flexible support like we offer managed cloud services or offshoring your onboarding process for projects really needs to be buttoned up. Otherwise, you're going to get inefficiencies with whoever you use. Again, some of these companies like us can help you do that, but it is important to have that in place. Um, yeah, what gaps are you filling? Why do you need it? What gaps are you filling? You're making sure we're not just getting people for the sake of having them. You know, quite often we've seen people just have full-time cloud engineers who, again, haven't needed them for the full duration. So there could have, could have been cost savings there if we cut down the time of them engineers during like the, the middle stages of engineering, um, but it be increased them at the beginning, increase them at the end. Um, yeah, there's like, there's a whole variety of things and maybe we'll do a post on some of them, but that's some of the key things to start with. Yeah. It's definitely that, that having that chemistry with that, that third party, isn't it? To make sure that they work the same way as you do. They have the same values you do. 
um, they're, they're chemistry is critical. Security and, and compliance and that sort of thing. Absolutely, chemistry is critical. Like if if you don't work in the same way and you don't understand it and think in the same way, and you're not completely aligned, then you're gonna you're gonna hit hurdles further down the line. Like I think just ensuring that you have a good chemistry and a good a good match between the ways that the two companies work for me is is critical. That's more important than expertise. More important than you know the other hurdles that you need to overcome that we'll cover in a second. Chemistry is number one for me. And if you're not able to correctly collaborate and have mm-hmm. that chemistry between you, then you're going to struggle for success. Yeah, you and can learn new tech, yeah. but it's difficult to learn new chemistry, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. You can't train chemistry. So it, you know, it's absolutely crucial. Last thing you want is someone in the team who's not gelling with the team, isn't contributing, isn't speaking up when you know they think that there's something wrong um, and it's just ultimately coasting or just hiding behind the scenes, it, it just won't provide the value that you need. And unfortunately, when you have, it comes to things like infrastructure, when you make mistakes in these areas or engineering in general, the impact's normally quite severe. So having good chemistry, open conversation, having team bonding and um, you know, everything that comes with chemistry ultimately is absolutely yeah. critical to having a successful team. Yeah. And I think uh, whilst it, expertise is maybe secondary to that it is important because you want them to for example you, you want them to know how to use kubernetes if you're using kubernetes so yeah nine times out of ten you're bringing someone in because they have the expertise that you need and what you don't want to be doing is paying for someone else to learn the expertise that you need the idea is to bring an experienced person in who has that expertise and can bring that knowledge. And like I said, there's always, it doesn't matter what technology is, there's always gotchas, there's always intricacies, there's always like do's and don'ts and best practices. And what you want is to have them from the beginning. So if you are leveraging third parties, make sure you find one who has the right expertise or has at least the support network to ensure that they're gonna be provided with the right expertise, whether it's coming from support from someone else in the business that does have it or whatever the agreement may be, but ensuring that they can achieve what you need is, is, is also important. Yeah. And I think you can really, you can tell the difference when they start Oh yeah, considering things like cost optimization and carbon footprint and, and the additional things the business cares about with the chemistry, like actually having the same values of how, what success looks like. And yeah, now, yeah. There's, there's, there's lots of people now that are learning, you know, that are coming through fresh into clouds that understand how to design and, you know, patch together a variety of services that come from cloud, understanding the cost optimization part, understanding the carbon footprint, as you just mentioned, is, is becoming more and more, um, required also security and compliance. This is quite a big thing that I think is, is, is definitely uh, under requested when it comes from this, someone who understands your security requirements and your compliance requirements is critical when building these infrastructures. It's really yeah. hard to go and change some of this stuff once you have a platform that's already running. So understanding that from as early as possible, and if you're able to have someone who has them expertise, then it will make a huge difference. Yeah, somebody who can actually provide regular kind of audits and reports and proof. <laughs> that the investment has been made in that area and that it's doing being being set up the way that the organization wants it to be. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're a green company and carbon footprint is important to you to try and backtrack that and change your platform later on to try and be, you know, you know, be better in this area is a really tough task to do. You know, there are lots of tools that come with things like Google cloud and Azure that, that kind of help you with that. But if you're having to completely move over to a new technology within these cloud platforms to lower your carbon footprint, um, that's a huge task to do. So thinking about this stuff in the beginning would definitely make yeah. a difference. So how, how, what sort of things would you say that an agency can do when they're working with a third-party vendor to ensure the security and compliance of their cloud services? Yeah, I would like to think that you know people have this stuff in place, but it's just not realistic, right? Um, the zero trust methodology or the zero trust approach, should I say, is absolutely critical. Uh, one thing that we've always done is either used an, a customer account, so they give us an account under their domain when accessing their cloud services, or in the past when we've had to bring in people, giving them an account on our domain, 
So in, in that instance, then people aren't, can't access the cloud platforms unless they're using our company-wide security policies. You know, we mandate 2FA. We you know make people re-log into cloud every time they visit the cloud consoles. Um, we have like a shorter timeout just on the cloud consoles. And we even lock down some of our services to the serials of the machines. And if we're using something like Google Cloud with VPC service controls, we can also limit access to the cloud platform to mm. IP addresses as well. So we can make them use our VPNs at the same time. That combined with the quality control gates that we talked about earlier, where if you're submitting code to something like GitHub or GitLab, and then that's only applied through an approval process with a pipeline, will also help you know, ensure that you don't get bad code or security flaws being introduced into what you're doing uh, because you have some sort of governance in the work that's being generated, which again, has been around for many, many years, but is not so prevalent in the cloud engineering you know, sphere or in the cloud space in general. So as we're seeing that traction come through, it's definitely improving the security posture of using third parties, but it does require companies to consider that when taking that on. Yeah. So, um, so what role does training and development play in this? So how, how would you prepare a workforce for the cloud resourcing challenges? Yeah, it, it really depends. Like training and development is critical. You know, technology is changing so fast. There's so many new tools coming out. It's such evolution. If we look at even like, we take security as an example. If we look at all of the three major cloud platforms from Google, Amazon, and Azure, we look at their evolutions in the security space and their tools and other stuff that's coming out. Without having sufficient training, people just won't be up to speed. Some areas you can't bring in expertise. Like if a technology is brand new, you're going to have to train. You're not going to be able to go out and find them. They're just not going to exist. So that continuous improvement and continuous training is critical in them scenarios. Hmm. Um, and also refreshing, you know, making sure that people are always staying up to date with the latest changes, with the latest technologies. It's quite easy for people to just get certified and then that's it, never get certified again. But in three years, the cloud landscape has changed significantly. So yeah. understanding the new features, which typically evolves around security, around efficiency, around cost management, uh, is important to stay up to date. It's continuous improvement of the individuals is what's key. Yeah. So how would you create a culture that supports continuous improvement in cloud and DevOps? You have to start from the top. You have to give time, you know, give budget, allow these people to to do what they like doing. Things like, you know, we've had success with lunch and learns before where we ask people to talk about different topics over lunchtime and we'll get like some different food in or if we're doing it remotely, we'd all schedule to kind of have um, lunch while learning at the same time. Hmm. Um, hackathons are a great thing. Get a bunch of people in a, in a room and just ask them to solve a challenge. This isn't always about solving a core business challenge some of this is about building up the teamwork building up the uh, camaraderie and building up the problem solving mindset where people can work together to try and solve a challenge and creating that culture so introducing hackathons hmm. really encouraging knowledge sharing knowledge sharing is key uh, all engineers are learning all times it's, it's, it's why we're in these roles and we have to because technology changes so much Sharing that knowledge with others is absolutely critical. So creating a space where they can do that, whether they have like a safe Slack channel, whether they have like you know, a weekly meeting, whatever it may be, always ensure that you're encouraging knowledge sharing amongst peers to to um, ensure that everyone is always progressing. Yeah. I think definitely one of the things that kind of helped us was having common goals to work towards. So whether that be through the kind of the agile process or from higher up, um, as you mentioned, the, the top-down strategy, understanding how the business wants to work, what what is the challenge we're trying to solve at the moment? Is it customer experience? Is it um, getting innovative features out faster? What are, what are those key goals that we want to rally against and kind of work towards them? And how do we measure that? Yeah, and, and it's exactly like you said, understanding the goals. I think every engineer would love to play with new technologies, of course. But if it's not relevant to the business needs, then you know, it probably sh shouldn't really be in that um, training schedule or that support structure. Of course, we like to keep people and give people space for innovation. Um, but at the same time, there does still need to be some direction. This is where the hackathons are quite good because a hackathon could really be on something that's relative to the business goals. 
even if it's not something you're going to directly use, you have some level of control around what, you know, what task are we going to give them to try and solve, you know, in, in that, in that workshop. Um, yeah. Understanding the values of the business and the objectives, like, is it user experience? Is it stability? Is it cost? Is it security? Is it all of the above? Mm. Providing that guidance from, from the top also should help people understand where to be learning, what technologies to be learning and, and being able to make sure that that is directly translating back to the business challenges. Yeah. And actually measuring that with things like the door metrics where we can kind of see lead time for changes or the change fail rate, like, so that we're able to align that against the overall business goals. I think was quite useful. Yeah. Uh, creating a no blame culture is, is key. I think Google, one of the ones who did this really well, uh, where I think the saying is that people don't make mistakes, technology and processes do. Mm. And if people are scared to admit when they've made a mistake, they're not going to tell you. If people no. think they're going to get in trouble, then they're not going to tell you. And you're not going to be able to put the measures in place to prevent that. So it should never be someone's fault when a mistake is made. There should be a review or a retro that says, right, why did this happen? How can we prevent this from happening again? You know, what, what do we need to do and to put in place to, to safeguard ourselves from a repeat of that? Yeah. But having a, a no blame culture is absolutely critical. And, you know, coinciding with that is not overloading the team. What's something that's really quite bad in agency and consulting world is like the hopping between different things. And although on, on your schedule and on, you know, your, your, if you're doing timesheets or whatever it may be at the end, end of the month, would look like you you haven't been that busy it can be mentally very draining to jump to like start thinking and getting into something technical then jump on a call then jump on emails then jump on slack then try and go back to doing something technical and then firefighting another project that, that could be technical so trying to prevent that sporadic jumping across prevents overloading the team otherwise you're never really getting to the goals that you you want to work towards mm. Yeah, having having that camaraderie, as you say, and and a common goal. And there's, there's a book that springs to mind called The Culture Code, which this isn't a a plug for. Um, they didn't tell me to say that, but it, it was great because it was looking at all the different teams that um kind of work together, like uh, the Secret Service and such, and these these small, powerful teams that really understood each other and how to work together and how to how to achieve a common goal. It, it, it makes such a difference when everyone has that in common and they're able to, to rally together and, and solve the challenges. Yeah. And there becomes a sense of ownership. Yeah. I, I've always felt a sense of ownership in, in my work. So when, there, if there's ever been an outage for whatever reason, I've wanted to go in and try and understand why is that happening? How do I fix that? And how do I stop that happening again? Because I've always felt a sense of ownership. And I think, Encouraging that and, and, you know, putting people in a position where they feel like it is theirs. They are able to make, you know, if you're just doing what you're told and you're just building what you're told to build, then you never feel a sense of ownership. Mm. Whereas if you're contributing towards what is being designed, you're having your input, you do feel that level of ownership and responsibility when, when that system goes live. And I think having that even balance where people can have a voice uh, creates that sense of ownership, which is critical in these scenarios. Mm. I think one of the other things was um, in building the culture was actually having useful documentation, not just doing documentation yeah. for documentation's sake, but things like those onboarding instructions that give you a step-by-step -step guide on how to get started quickly so that your onboarding time goes from two hours down to 30 minutes or something. And having those playbooks or runbooks so that when you need to do something or you need to solve a challenge that's been seen before, that the steps are already there. So you're not having to figure it out a second time. Yeah. And everyone has, you know, different knowledge, knowledges that they've built. Like everyone has a different, their own understanding and creating that platform of being able to share that, whether it is through the use of, of playbooks. Like I'll give you a good example. I spent some time uh, quite a while ago building out playbooks to help more junior engineers how to troubleshoot different status codes that come from a web platform. Now, status codes are pretty well known. This is not, this is not unique. But actually, how a status code translated to an outage or a technical issue that was happening with our application at that time was unique. 
So if we were seeing a 502 error, which was creating a bad gateway, which leads us to normally be some sort of timeout, then how do you troubleshoot a timeout? So we created a guide on how to deal with troubleshooting a timeout and 502 errors. Same as if you have a 501, which is typically, or 500, sorry, which is typically an application error, how you troubleshoot this is slightly different to a timeout because mm. there is an error that's being generated. Then we created a playbook on how to troubleshoot 500 errors. And we went through a huge variety of scenarios. And actually, a lot of these playbooks were repeatable across other projects because we use similar technologies. But by doing that, it became an educational piece for a lot of our engineers on how do you actually get to the root cause of a problem just by having useful playbooks that were re relatable to what we were actually doing and to the scenarios that we often came across rather than just creating you know, how to restore or how to do a furlover. There's a lot more that happens before you even get to that stage. And, and it's forward thinking that made the biggest difference for us. Yeah, and having priority levels as well so that you understand that not every bug that comes through is top priority right now. Like some things that may be affecting the critical path, like the, the key actions that users take, like being able to submit a form or something is maybe the number one action for a particular website. If they can't do that, then that's obviously a problem. But if there's a minor styling tweak, like a full stops missing, then maybe that's not <laughs> top priority right now. And it can wait until. Yeah. And something that, you know, we always call out as an S SLA as well is number of people impacted. This is really critical because sometimes people just have tools and alerts that, I, you know, there's an alert because we saw a slow APM result, right? We saw a slow mm. backend processing action, but actually like, if it's just one person or two people out of a thousand that are seeing this, we probably shouldn't be making changes to the platform to try and solve it. So having them SLAs in place, having them clear, clear thresholds. And also another thing as well was timings as well. Something we tried not to do was to have an all out, you know, team wide meeting when things were going wrong. If, if an issue only went down for five minutes. We had a threshold where, of course, we would start to investigate and fix them straight away before we escalated the process to become be declared an actual incident. We had a window we allowed, and this actually reduced quite significantly the wider company. Um, I don't want to say panic because it's not the right term, right? But the wider company awareness of when things were happening to only being the more serious events because there was no point calling up the product owner for a five minute outage that we were able to resolve very quickly because there was an unexpected database maintenance. Mm. Like we actually put in place some more clearly defined um, parameters around the SLAs, which actually gave a much better control and stopped a lot of noise within the business. And as a yeah. result, we actually improved the platforms. Yeah, no, so sometimes you do need to solve those challenges immediately, don't you? Because it's, it's affecting yeah. that critical an path. Outage but... An outage, but it's yeah. got to give your engineers time to resolve an issue an outage might be able to self-resolve itself before you you hit the panic button and declare like you know a, a major incident. So there needs to be more fine-grained SLAs rather than just mm. you know response time and other stuff. It needs to be like who is experienced that slow response time. And a good example of that as well is that let's say you have a website and the administration pages of the website for your you know your webmasters or your content team seeing a slow page load in the admin, but the actual main website is running fine for all of your end users. Now that might trigger your tools. Do you declare that, you know, a major P1 or P2 incident, or, you know, are you able to take your time a little bit more? Yes, your content team are slowed down, but actually you're able to like, you know, not take some drastic actions from failing over or restoring backups while you invest, while you take time to investigate that issue. So, mm. but yeah, from a monitoring tool perspective, that could trigger some of your SLAs. So yeah. this is where you mentioned a critical user path is absolutely crucial in defining SLAs and defining the outcomes that your team are working towards. Yeah, there's that, there's that balance, isn't there, between innovation and ensuring stability and security in those cloud environments. Yeah, exactly. You know, these tools are, are getting extremely advanced, the, not just the monitoring tools, but also, you know, the tools like Kubernetes and Istio and, you know, which are now getting onto their next iterations of uh, complexities. Um, they're getting really advanced. 
So you do need that even balance on how do you allow innovation without compromising quality. Mm. Um, it, it is, you know, it is uh, a process that needs to be established and, and well-defined. Yeah, and th- these agencies, they'll, they'll be getting requests through all the time for new features. And sometimes the best action is actually not to do what the client has asked. And it's, it's to, to yeah. take that st- stance of, no, we need to focus on the security and stability because otherwise we might end up having a major issue which would uh, affect this relationship with the client. So, Yeah, yeah, of mm. course. Especially like, you know, if you're, if you're a consultancy and you've put in a platform that you then need to make a big change, you know, it becomes complicated around who is responsible for that change if the customer requested a specific technology, you know, you, you have to be, you're, you're brought in a specialist to make the right advice for the customer. Mm. Um, so it's important to kind of uh, address that early on. Yeah. I think definitely u- using the SLA or the service level objectives so that you can understand the, the key areas to focus on. Um, it's definitely, definitely up there as like high priority. Uh, once you have it in those P levels, so you know what is important, what's not. Um, but also security lately is becoming increasingly important, isn't it, with the increasing attacks? And I saw the other day there was an announcement from GCHQ about um, uh, home workers accessing cloud resources, law firms being attacked and in particular, and having that prioritization of what actually needs to be done right now um, and what can, what can we defer to a later release. Yeah, I mean, I get these these cloud platforms are getting. I use the word diverse quite a lot today, but they are getting significant. There's lots mm. of different tools, lots of different add-ons, lots of different entry points that now need to be secured. They're getting more and more integrated into our day to day. More and more tools are directly integrating with them. So, security is absolutely crucial. Security is the number one invested area for anyone who's adopting cloud. It's, it's highest level of investment but also tools are getting pretty good in this in this area too so yeah it's hugely important security should always be at the forefront of of any um any platform that you're building or you know anything that you're recommending hmm. and uh i suppose have, hand in hand with that having a way to scale your resources when needed so if you do have that critical release that needs to go live for a request from a customer. Um, but you also know that the security needs upgrading. That's where somebody like a cloud partner such as ourselves can come in and help out by supporting that infrastructure and, and being that um, kind of augmentation of that team to help uh, support their services and provide that additional level of support. Yeah. You know, it, we've, we've said this time and time again, it's been the theme of, of this conversation. Mm-hmm. These people are expensive. You know, having them full time on the roster when you don't need them is expensive. Being able to pick up someone who has, for example, secure experience in the cloud, just use them for the time that you need them, and being able to to you know drop them mm. is you know is really valuable. It's, it's valuable in ensuring that you're not compromising security, you're not compromising cost efficiency, you're not compromising operational efficiency at the cost of these employees. So having that flexibility. Um, is a huge benefit in these scenarios that you can afford to have them. You can bring them in just for what you need, um, rather than having them, you know, full time on 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 the payroll and not having them utilized all of the time. Mm. So yeah, flexible cloud support in that scenario is yeah very valuable. Mm. Um, so we're coming to the end of our hour. So um, in clean closing, what advice would you give to agencies looking to build a sustainable and agile cloud infrastructure? That effectively addresses those resourcing challenges. Yeah, yeah. It, again, agency and consultancy, the number one challenge is flexibility. Projects come and projects go. So having a way to scale your team when needed is crucial. That's crucial for any, you know, anyone who works in that industry. Mm. This needs to come from, from the top down. You need to have buy-in to understand also the core values of these individuals, understand the value that they bring to the business. That needs to be understood from from the top. Otherwise, you're going to always struggle to get investment for for these people. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you can use third parties to to augment internal capabilities and focus on your core business. Um, but you know, it's, it's really important again that the business understands the value of these individuals. Yeah, that's brilliant. Awesome. Well, 
that's all we have time for today. So, um, yeah, we'd love to hear more about how you're solving the cloud resourcing challenge. Um, thanks, Ashley. It's been great speaking with you today to hear your thoughts. Yeah, thanks all. Look forward to speaking again soon. And thanks to all our viewers for attending today. Uh, if you're watching this on Catch Up, if you would like to see more content like this, then please do follow Fernie on LinkedIn. And we hope to see you in the next one. So until next time, thanks everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye.